Here I come to save the day. Well, I'm really not the hero here. Uh, the real heroes are the healthcare providers, the healthcare administrators, medical professionals, people who are on the front lines combating what appears to be an invisible enemy, COVID-19, also known as coronavirus. And this podcast is about them. Quick note on this episode. I am the one being interviewed for the first time and by Catherine Boyarski. And if you're wondering whether we are related, well, you are correct. She is my niece. Catherine is an oncology specialist at Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and a marketing consultant and freelance writer. I want to thank Catherine for conducting this interview. If you want to read more, you can find her article in the link at Florence Health in the episode notes. So let's ride the wave. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. Alrighty, so um, thank you so much for chatting with me. So this is for Florence Health. They are a healthcare website for providers to share knowledge. Uh, so they they cater to nurses, physicians assistants, and advanced practice nurses. So healthcare providers. So all the content is provider to provider. So basically, what we're what I'm hoping to speak with you about today is how provi- healthcare providers can be educated to help stop the spread of COVID-19 and what they can be doing uh, to help to implement that at their facilities. Um, so the first question is, how does the news of the community spread of this disease and how it is spreading, how does that change the way that healthcare providers should be practicing and what they should be doing differently? It's different in that uh, now we can look at this as being at least epidemic in our regional areas. So we can think about, you know, it's, um, it's, it's not only we can just think about it as being a global pandemic, but really healthcare uh, workers um, are really frontline uh, responders to this uh, pandemic situation. And with that in mind, I mean, there's a couple of different things. First of all, just from intake of patients, there are certain recommendations now that are in place uh, Mm -hmm. that are put forward by the World Health Organization, by the Centers uh, for Disease Control uh, at uh, the state level and certainly counties and other local governments uh, that are promoting different types of personal protective equipment as well as Mm -hmm. intake of patients or Mm -hmm. if it's uh, on-site, how to work with patients and also to uh, deal with social distancing, with personal hygiene, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, hygiene on the, uh, in the workplace uh, to prevent mm-hmm. the spread. Um, mm-hmm. On a communications basis, I think there are some import- really critically important uh, aspects uh, in terms of communication directly with um, patients and you know, with, their, with their families on maintaining their personal hygiene and what they can do on a regular basis. So some of the basics, right, in terms of mm-hmm. uh, making sure that, uh, you know, they wash their hands, if they cough or sneeze, to sneeze into their, uh, into the crook of their uh, elbow, uh, mm-hmm. to make sure that, you know, if they carry 
and tissues to blow into the tissue to throw the tissue away, wash their hands, or use some Purell or you know whatever mm-hmm. hand sanitizer uh, that they might have. So those types of precautions. If someone is sick, to tell them basically you should stay at home um, mm-hmm. unless it's severe enough that you do need to go to see a healthcare provider. Um, mm-hmm. In some instances, and this is the thing that's kind of tricky at this time of the year because we're at the height of cold and flu season, mm-hmm. uh, that the effects of cold and flu are very similar to this, especially mm-hmm. for certain segments of the population. So, you know, someone who catches the, I'm, I'm sorry, we're at home right now and <laughs> no a dog in the background, uh, that the effects of coronavirus, which is, you know, the coronavirus a, a coronavirus by itself, okay, this one is specifically coronavirus infectious disease 19 or COVID-19, um, is a, fa- it's, it's part of that family of typical flu viruses that are out there. Um, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, H1N1 and, and the like, some of them, of mm-hmm. course, are more severe than others. H1N1, as it is described, was, you know, the swine flu. Um mm-hmm. So, uh, those, so those effects are going to be very f- similar from cold and flu. And so mm-hmm. they'll mask in some cases what may be a, an underlying situation of COVID-19. Uh, mm-hmm. For young children, that might not be as much of an issue. And if you look at the impacts for certain age segments uh, of this uh, disease and its pattern, uh, it mm-hmm. tends, it appears that the impacts for people who are younger, younger age groups is less severe than those who are on the older the scale. Uh, mm-hmm. And those who have a comorbidity that's associated with them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, from the risk management perspective, what would you um, recommend that providers implement, and and how do you recommend that they prepare for any kind of upcoming shortages of medical supplies, or um, how can they how can they best prepare for the continued spread? So, uh, a couple things. One is uh, in terms of staffing. So we can yeah. think about this in terms of uh, staff and any contractors, service providers. Uh, for immediate staff needs, we need to think about how do we take care of our immediate staff. So I spoke about it a little bit before, but to make sure that you have uh, personal protective equipment, to make sure that there is training on how to use that personal protective equipment. And if you look at a situation, um, again, it's not as extreme uh, as a situation like Ebola. There were uh, protocols that were put out there by the Centers for Disease Control and how to use uh, PPE and how to dispose of PPE once it's used. And that's really critical uh, because if it's not done properly, if you don't have adequate face shields, um, surgical masks and you know, the N95 masks, gloves and gowns on and then take them off and make sure that you, again, wash your hands after you're done to make sure that you minimize any potential for infection, uh, then there could be spread of it. And we don't, mm-hmm. the thing is, you don't want healthcare workers to be impacted by this. Um, mm-hmm. And that's whether it's frontline or people who are sort of secondary uh, support staff. Uh, who mm-hmm. might be needed, uh, whether it's somebody who's at the admin and, and intake. So so there are a couple things. One is, um, and this is in some of the guidance that's out there, is to try to create some separation, some barriers between people who are coming into healthcare offices who may need uh, care uh, so that there's some distance there. If you mm-hmm. do need to provide care, there are certain protocols that need to be 
provide need to be followed in terms of providing PPE. Um, and then, and also just to, you know, because there may be long hours, just to be aware of both physical and mental strain. So uh, one aspect is also just making sure that the psychosocial social support is there. Um, but they're also, in terms of the, there may be a surge capacity that's needed, uh, especially for certain providers. Um, you know, whether there's, uh, whether that's providing for certain congregate care or um, inpatient services uh, that are provided. Now, in terms of vendors and contractors, support services, you know, for consumables and, and other services, it's important to, to ask them uh, immediately uh, what type of continuity plans that they have and uh, what the service level agreements are, whether they're actually able to provide for them. And to start thinking about if they are not able to, what are you going to do in terms of secondary or uh, additional contingencies uh, mm -hmm. to provide for those types of consumables? Um, you know, one that you know comes to mind is just basic medications. Uh, we're hearing now in the news that certain active ingredients uh, in, that are supplied by uh, China and other parts of uh, the Far East may be in short supply. And mm -hmm. you know, that may take uh, days and weeks to impact supply chains, but it will affect the pharmaceutical manufacturers. Now, mm -hmm. you know, it's their job to ensure that they do have some continuity of production. Um, mm -hmm. However, that's something that you need to take into consideration when it comes to you know, treating patients and ensuring that um, there's uh, adequate... Uh, supplies that you need to provide to them for basic pharmaceuticals, uh, mm -hmm. medications, um, mm -hmm. and any other ancillary items. Um, yeah, we were affected when Puerto Rico, when the hurricane happened, we were affected because that was where, um, when I was when I was working at the Brigham, that was where all of our saline solution and all of our IV solutions came from. Um, so we had we saw that in a huge way because we had a shortage and we were, we were diverting those supplies to the most critical patients. And, um, a lot of our antibiotics and things like that were coming from Puerto Rico. So that was a similar sort of supply chain issue. And, you know, the other thing to, to think about is, you know, all of those additional costs that are at hand. So you mm. need to factor that into your operation. What do you need to cover, you know, over time? You know, and, and also those additional support services that may be required, um, you know, mm -hmm. psychosocial support. Um, mm -hmm. There, uh, you may have to go to outside contractors for certain things. Mm -hmm. um, I know that that's not something that come, may come naturally. For some organizations, mm -hmm. they may rely on contractors or subcontractors for certain services or even for, you know, their internal um, you know, medical support and things like that. But, you know, mm -hmm. it's something to, to think about. The other thing to think about is, you know, how much sick time will you allow and how are you going to cover that, you know, and need to think about having a significant percentage of your staff that may be sick with this at s specific periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, so those are all things. And it's, they may not be sick themselves. They may also be mm -hmm. caring for children or loved ones at home. So that's uh, something to consider. The other aspect of this is uh, the need to train people. So training them on the protocols for treating patients, for intake, for uh, using PPE. There may be a need to cross-train people if certain people are out uh, mm -hmm. given certain positions. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those are some of some of the things uh, that need to be taken into consideration from. Mm-hmm. Another vantage point, and that's a managerial point of view or administrative point of view, is how is this incident going to be handled, especially for larger organizations uh, working with or treating or providing services to a larger population. And that mm-hmm. is, um, you know, typically in the emergency management sphere, business continuity sphere, what we call incident command or having mm-hmm. an emergency management structure. And that's outside of the ordinary uh, structure of day-to-day operations or day-to-day management, you know, typically mm-hmm. things you know have a an operation of, and flow of how they work. In an emergency situation, that is ramped up, and there are certain things that are put in place that wouldn't normally be in place. Additional communications that needs to be hand, that need to be handled. That mm-hmm. is uh, a greater level of coordination, especially for a larger organization, a larger population that they have to attend to. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's something to consider about having a, uh, an incident command team that's mm-hmm. able to provide what's going on, especially to monitor what's happening, you know, in the overall environment, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the community, but also within your organization and with the uh, clients or customers and stakeholders that you're dealing with uh, on a regular basis to ensure mm-hmm. that they're getting the communication that they need. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone's aware, and they're to the level that you're able to provide um, up-to-date information and a level of transparency uh, that mm-hmm. you're able to maintain that. Would you say that we are at a point now, or will be soon, where larger facilities should be creating an incident command team, or are we already there? I think we're there. Okay. Yeah, I think I think most organizations that uh, I have been in contact with and dealing with, they have activated their uh, incident command. Um, for larger institutions, medical institutions, uh, they're at least, let's say they have their emergency operations center, it may be a virtual mm-hmm. emergency operations center, and by mm-hmm. that I mean something where, you know, everybody is available on a, you know, on a, on a, on a, on a group space that might be um, something like a Microsoft Teams site or mm-hmm. a, uh, I, dare I say, Slack for the yeah. for the, uh, the the younger generation, or uh, that might be a Skype site or a Zoom site or something like mm-hmm. that, but a group site where they can provide uh, a situation report of what's going mm-hmm. on, status of what's happening, um, and if you want a good example of a global sort of situational awareness of what's going on, which is one of those key things that that, that people want to maintain, is you know w- what's going on in the overall world, what's happening in our nation, mm-hmm. what's happening in our community, and what's happening in our in our facilities, right? Um, mm-hmm. What do we have to be concerned about there? You know, what do we have to be concerned about in terms of our staff, in terms of our management, in terms of our clients? You know, it, it's, it's that situational awareness. So a good example is the Johns Hopkins, um, I'm trying to remember the exact name, but it's the, um, it's their computer science and engineering department that has this uh, great dashboard um, and you know, for people who are listening to the podcast or who will uh, get the the art, read the article, we'll include a link uh, to mm-hmm. that so that they can uh, take a look at it. But it's relatively up to they update it at least once or twice a day, if not more mm-hmm. frequently. And it's a pretty good count of what's going on, and it gives a logarithmic scale of the extent of those people, the cases at least that they have found. Although you know. As one thing that I, I want to point out, and that is, I think we're really looking at lagging epidemiological data 
that's available to us now based mm-hmm. upon uh, the incidents of uh, COVID-19. Um, mm-hmm. But to, to get back to my original point, having a virtual operation center or having an EOC, a place, mm-hmm. if it's a large enough organization, I mean, in the government right now, various depart- departments of health at the state level, certainly at the national level, but also in some large municipalities, and I'm speaking about cities um, and counties, they have activated their EOCs, emergency operations centers, and are staffing them uh, to monitor and to respond to this event. And so what would you say are the best resources for providers to be educated themselves, and what can they be doing to make sure that people are following protocol? So uh, this is a good question, and uh, there are uh, a number of resources that are available, um, yeah. and that's at you know uh, you're at the national level. I mean, as I mentioned before, the World Health Organization provides them. Mm-hmm. The you know state uh, departments of health provide a lot of guidance uh, that's available. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the example I provided to you uh, that uh, the planning toolkit that was developed for the New York yeah. City Department of Health. That's being deployed. In terms of monitoring and maintaining that, it's a matter of checking in with people. Uh, you know, just you know, seeing what's being done, how things are being handled, observing how things are being done, um, mm-hmm. tracking data on things. You know, for just mm-hmm. some basic things. If you're providing PPE to people, okay, and you're you know, first of all, there should be a process. You know, inputs process and outputs, if we think about Mm -hmm. it very simply, there should be an inventory of the PPE. You should be able to see people using the PPE. You should be checking that people are using it properly. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, making sure and just being clear to people, look, this is for your own welfare uh, and for your own well-being. Putting it on properly has to be done. Otherwise, you risk the possibility of infection. That's the last Mm -hmm. thing that we want each key member of a healthcare team to encounter, um, and then looking at how it's disposed to make sure that it's disposed of, because that stuff is hazardous waste, right? And mm-hmm. so um, it needs to be treated as such and disposed mm-hmm. of and, and tossed out. Um, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately, there were cases during the uh, e- Ebola um, uh, outbreak in you know both in West Africa and, and in the United States. One incident I saw in New York City was there was a building that they went to, and I saw um, members of the first response team, and I won't name which agency it mm. was, disposing of gloves into a trash can mm. right on the street. Yeah. And I, I just, I went, <laughs> I thought that was, I thought that was insane. So it's those yeah. sorts of things. And I, I, I don't mean to make light of it and I don't mean to be hypercritical, but it's just those sorts of things. And I, the people who are doing it probably didn't know, nobody trained right. them. So it's, it's a matter of, of, of training yeah. and monitoring and auditing and making mm-hmm. sure that, uh, these things are being carried out by observing and then also by looking at, you know, making sure, you know, as you sort of what we call management by walking around, but mm-hmm. making sure that there are people who are responsible, people are empowered, mm-hmm. and uh, that when people make mistakes and people are, you know, they, they may make mistakes that uh, they're, they're told and, and educated on what's happening uh, and that you ensure that they don't do it again, because you know these. This is uh, serious business. You know, people getting Absolutely. infected, and especially for um, the very vulnerable population, those people who are immunocompromised or have a comorbidity uh, that may be a cardiovascular disease, it may be diabetes, it may be cancer. 
especially those who are up there in age, are at far greater risk of mortality due to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know that a lot of hospitals implement hand hygiene audits anyways. So if they can mobilize those teams for PPE audits, just keeping people you know, aware of what they should be doing and making sure that they are actually doing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's more encouraging people. I mean, I, uh, in the last couple of days in meeting people, um, just making it a habit of, you know, it's, it's a change in culture and, mm. you know, it's hard to change cultural norms. But one thing that we learned from the Ebola outbreak in West Africa is that changing that behavior is crucial. You know, people are used to having contact with another, hugging each other and mm-hmm. shaking hands and those sorts of things. This is the time where we're going to have to change that. And yeah. I have started doing the elbow bump. Yeah. This is the, you know, it, it, it sounds a little bit like something out of Curb Your Enthusiasm, but it does. <laughs> it's, 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 it makes sense because, yeah. you know, that transmission via hands is mm-hmm. more likely now. I, I have instructed people, if you're going to meet with people and you're really concerned about this, maintaining that one meter distance mm-hmm. is important. And to really explain to people, look, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to be unreasonable, but I'm just trying to take reasonable precautions to make sure that we're not infecting one another if this is if one of us might be in contact with this. Absolutely. I just saw a basketball player posted that, I, I forgot exactly who, but that they wouldn't be doing any autographs for the time being and shaking, ma- meeting people after games just for self-protection. And that sounded very reasonable. And I hope that others follow soon. All right. So another question, uh, what other challenges could come out of this for healthcare providers as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak? And how can they prepare for, prepare for some peripheral issues that arise? Well, I think that the that healthcare, uh, because of the great needs that might be out there, there may mm-hmm. be additional rationing uh, mm-hmm. of medicines. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have seen in certain very extreme situations, and certainly the hope is that this doesn't get to the point where healthcare or service to certain people has to be rationed. Mm-hmm. That being said, I do know, and I have. Uh, been in contact with certain people who are, you know, uh, public health specialists, those at mm-hmm. Johns Hopkins University, those that are part of the Mailman Center at uh, Columbia University and, and other places, that certain decisions may have to come to, you know, who do we put on a respirator if we have a limited mm-hmm. number of respirators? And wow. the honest truth is that we have a limited number of respirators in the United States. Uh, the figure that was shared uh, during uh, the Bush administration when they took on a the scenario of a worst level pandemic is that we would need to have 750,000 respirators throughout the United States. And, you know, the type of acute care hospital beds with um, isolated rooms and so on and so forth, we just don't have that capacity. And mm-hmm. so certain decisions mean, will need to be made if we get to that point where uh, we need to ration that level of care. So healthcare institutions uh, will need to start at least thinking about that at some point if it comes to it and mm-hmm. then coming up with some sort of protocols. Now, that may be something that is provided, again, from the state level on down. So it mm-hmm. may not really be upon them. 
but really, that's uh, that's really an uh, and an, not an ideal situation uh, to be in. But that's something that uh, you know on an extreme level that uh, they would have to think about. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, there there are are certainly other scenarios in terms of you know uh, breaks in the supply chain for not just medicines and medical supplies, but also for just basic items. I mean, you know, uh, and also for basic services. I mean, transportation might be hampered, uh, the food chain might be interrupted. So um, what I do recommend, and this is a recommendation for all people at this time, is that they stock up on just basic food, water, uh, hygiene items at home, soap and shampoo and things like that, enough for at least two weeks supply. Uh, okay. So that they know if they if they have to hunker down, that they're able to get by and being there. And that's, you know, hopefully people have access to books and Internet and other things to entertain themselves, maybe board games and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe a little bit old fashioned uh, of me to mention that, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good way to get reacquainted with the people in your household. Absolutely. Um would you say that there are anything, is it there's anything that providers should be bringing up policy-wise for infection control and prevention? Um, I think just a lot of what I had uh, mentioned before in terms of how to, um, how to do intake and also um, how to manage people within the facility. So, okay. you know, uh, we're human beings. We like to congregate together. Uh, one of the things that we need to think about is uh, instituting social distancing policies mm -hmm. to keep people separate. The one thing that concerns me um, in the role that I'm in is, uh, you know, adult care uh, facilities and assisted mm -hmm. living facilities. Um, something like COVID-19 can run rampant. And we're seeing that, unfortunately, in the facility out in Washington State, in Kirkland, in Kings County, you know, we're we're seeing just that kind of spread, and mm -hmm. um, and so we've seen, I think it's three deaths in that specific facility, if not more. Wow. You know, suddenly from this again, it's a vulnerable population. They've mm -hmm. been exposed to this. We don't know how long they've been exposed to it, but we're assuming, according to the disease um, investigation, it looks like at least a couple of weeks. So it's those wow. types of situations where if this gets into a facility, it can spread rapidly. So with that in mind, uh, making sure that you disinfect uh, areas adequately, separate mm -hmm. uh, patients. Again, mm -hmm. it, it might run against sort of, you know, the creating a social community. But um, for now, that's the prudent thing to do. And sure. it's uh, it's hard to make those decisions. It's hard to say, okay, well, you know, we're going to do that right now when it appears everyone should be fine. Mm -hmm. The problem is this thing can incubate for a couple of days before it starts to present sim symptoms. And we know that this virus uh, is shedding for at least a couple of days, if not longer, before it starts to become, someone starts to become symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So that's the, and this is sort of the worst case scenario. You have something that has a higher than average mortality rate compared to your seasonal uh, flu uh, and has a higher level of transmission. Is there anything else that you would want to share with healthcare providers? Yeah, I think having been in emergency response and also managed a, a large scale medical program. Uh, overseas and been involved in pandemic flu planning, it can be very stressful. 
And mm-hmm. I know that healthcare providers are generally used to dealing with stress, and uh, that's what makes them special. Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, you need to recognize what your body is telling you. So mm-hmm. make sure that you take care of yourself, get mm-hmm. enough sleep, rest, um, eat healthy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know it's night, you know, when you're stressed, if you smoke cigarettes or you get a drink and stuff like that. Um, and I'm not saying, look, you know, don't do that at all, but try mm-hmm. to minimize it because, um, you know, it, it, it can really impact your your sleep and your health over time, especially over many weeks. Avoid any type of behavior that's going to diminish your overall psychological and physical health. Because this is a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a situation like this, it's a really long marathon and not mm-hmm. just a sprint. Take care of your mental health. So make mm-hmm. sure that you're connecting with people, your family, even if it's just being on the phone with them or doing a Skype session and, you know, telling them how bad things are, or what's going on. It just helps to get that out there. If you mm-hmm. go and see someone for therapy, and there are many people who do, um, mm-hmm. then uh, using, you know, video conferencing sessions may be an option. And mm-hmm. that's something to, uh, to consider. But don't ignore your emotions. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's hard sometimes. And I'll, I will tell you that, you know, I, I've been on those front lines and it's been, it, it can be really, really tough on you. Uh, and you mm-hmm. can suffer a real mental toll and then, mm-hmm. you know, take care of yourself sort of spiritually as far mm-hmm. as that's concerned. I mean, you know, if you do attend uh, church, synagogue, mosque, whatever house of worship, then, uh, you know, as long as you're told that it's safe to go there, uh, and to worship, you should go ahead and, and, and do that. Um, mm-hmm. If it's not, then you should find out how you can seek that sort of spiritual sustenance that you would on a normal basis. And that mm-hmm. may be, you know, again, uh, I, I hate to sort of harp on it, but, you know, uh, doing a sort of um, video-based type of, mm-hmm. of service. And I, I know that that's been done for some congregations when they, mm-hmm. when congregants aren't able to attend, they're able mm-hmm. to tell uh, to attend uh, through a video link and things like that. But, you know, maybe just be also be praying at home, maybe meditating, uh-huh. um, but also just, you know, get some exercise. If you can go out and get some exercise, that's going to help going for a walk in the park. Um, you know, again, that may mean keeping social distance from people, uh-huh. um, maybe walking with a group of people, but maybe you're walking in a forum that, you know, you're, you're not uh, in close contact, but at least can talk to one another. Uh-huh. Um you know, I, I know it may sound absurd, but that's if you see uh, situations in other parts of the world right now, uh, like in Italy or in Japan or South Korea or China, you know, people are keeping their distance. So so those are the so those are some basic things. And um, the other last thing, and I, I hate to sort of end or to, to finish this up on sort of a sour note, as with other types of uh, pandemics, they come in waves. So, mm-hmm. you know, what we're, what we're seeing here from what I, my vantage point is that lower end of the hockey stick, and we don't know what that exponential ramp up in the number of cases here in the United States is going to be. Um, and it does, from what I can see, if we look at places like South Korea and Japan and China, other parts of the world, it's going to, we're going to have a large number of cases. They just haven't been diagnosed yet. Uh, mm-hmm. because we don't have the disease surveillance. But it also will come back if it's like the other sort of pandemics. It could have a situation where it might come back 
uh, might be dormant for a certain period and then come back, let's say, in the fall. So that mm -hmm. is a possibility, uh, just to be ready that it's, it, 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 it's not just going to be done in a, in a matter of a month or two months, but it's something that may return. Definitely. Those are great tips, and I love the idea of the video conferencing. It's such an easy way to keep in touch. So um, those are. this has been so helpful. I really appreciate you chatting with me. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, I hope that this is uh, helpful for your uh, readers and for our listeners, and uh, we hope that everyone stays healthy and stays safe. Yes, wash your hands. You may find out more information at www pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback, and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com. Thanks for listening, and come back soon for our next podcast. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and Clinical Associate Professor in Emergency and Project Management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.